I'm waiting for JR to call. Waiting. La 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 la. Hello. It's me. Yo, dude. I've been wondering. Hello. Okay. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Oh my gosh, that song's on constantly. Yeah. Okay. The cool thing is, though, that it, it sounds not at all different from any other Adele song. So. Yeah. There you go. Clay vehemently disagrees, but. Vehemently? You seem pretty pretty hurt about it. Hurt? Yeah. I'd say I'm hurt. Would you. Would you say butt hurt or just regular? I was going to say butt hurt. <laughs> I seem I pretty butt hurt. I'm still not. It. I'm still not sure the exact right syn- uh, context or syntax <laughs> for how, how that word functions. All right. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story of Podcast, episode 118. Today, very excited to have a special guest, Gene Yang, coming back to the Story Men. He will be talking about his work on the recent run of Superman and much, much more. But first, let's get into a topic du jour, as they call it. Well, it is Super Bowl Sunday, uh, the Sunday after this episode airs. And uh, I have, I think I've watched every Super Bowl since I've been alive. I, hi, every, hi everyone, it's me, Matt Michelotis. I just wanted to say hi. Oh yeah, we didn't introduce ourselves. I guess I kind of botched the intro. Yeah, let's go back and do it again. No, let's keep going. It's more fun if it's botched. <laughs> I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Michelotis. <laughs> we're only on episode 118, so we're going to get this podcast thing down eventually. Yeah, we're new to this. We're babies. Well, I was so excited to talk about Gene and the Super Bowl. I, I just blew right past who we actually are. Yeah. Every, <laughs> As if people You don't people know. should know our names by now. It's episode 118. Pretty good uh, number. Matt, do you watch the Super Bowl? No, I don't. No, I don't watch the Super Ever? Bowl. Uh... We had a party at our house once. Like okay, so let me say this because we all know Clay thirteen years ago. Um, for a long time, it, particularly when there wasn't a team that I cared about, like this year and any year the Steelers aren't in it, um, or the Patriots, I care about watching the Patriots lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, anytime that's not the case, I still watch it just for the purely for the commercials and or, or for the whole entertainment of it. Well, I watch the commercials sometimes. Nah, mainly for me, just for the commercials. And for the terrible halftime shows. Yeah, that's true. You, um, you know, guys, this is the level of my ignorance. The The other day I was in the grocery store and I was getting my food. And I looked at the ends of each checkout stand were balloons for sports teams that didn't belong in that grocery store. I was like, why do they have sports teams that are from other areas balloons for them? That seems really weird. And it probably literally took me three minutes to figure it out. I was like, oh, those must be the teams in the Super Bowl. That's coming soon. <laughs> I uh, would suspect that there are a lot of people in Portland that are dumbfounded in a similar way. 
about sports and football. Well, uh, big yeah, fan, Portland. Love to have you on the show. <laughs> so, so uh, Clay Clay found an article and a column, I guess, by our friend Tom Kratmaker. Uh, it's in USA Today. He's been writing for them for quite a while now. But uh, the title of the article is "Is It Immoral mm-hmm. to Watch the Super Bowl?" And, uh, you know, I'll just read from the opening here. Uh, Tom says, there is mounting evidence and public awareness that playing football is bad for your brain. And now, to dramatize the statistics and grim anecdotes, uh, we have this movie Concussion starring Will Smith. And so Tom asks, you know, is this having any effect on how we actually play the game? And he said, yes and no. Uh, Yes, fewer and fewer people are letting their children, Mm -hmm. their boys, Mm -hmm. play football. Uh, the number of people who, who are refusing to let their kids play football keeps increasing because they recognize rapidly, it's bad for their kids. Rapidly. But he says, at the same time that more and more of us would not let our own sons play, we apparently have no qualms about watching while other people's sons risk brain damage to entertain us on the field of the NFL. And so that's that's it. There's this. He's asking if, if there's this moral pressure building in the American conscious, uh, uh, conscience that is eventually going to result in in lower ratings for the NFL. And it hasn't yet. Like, that's the thing. The Super Bowl and professional football in general continue to be, like, the biggest attraction for television, Mm -hmm. the biggest ratings uh, uh, ever, like, in in history. The last year's Super Bowl broke every viewing record that television had, I'm pretty sure. And this year's will probably break them all because you've got the the perfect matchup of the potentially the greatest quarterback in history going out off into the sunset against – the new superstar face of the NFL, Cam Newton from Carolina. I was reading this article just strictly from USA Today's app. I didn't know who wrote it. And I got halfway through and I stopped and was reading paragraphs out loud to my friend. And I got to the end and I was like, it's Tom. Tom wrote this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so I went back and I thought, that's it, it's really incredible because the leap that he makes mid-article is he says, we also know that football is is an avenue out of poverty for disadvantaged um, young men, particularly those who are African-American who come from poor neighborhoods. Yeah, so he says, I'll read the quote, he says, juxtapose the sport's massive Mm -hmm. spectator popularity with our growing knowledge of its dangers and with the reality that most of the men playing in the NFL are black and or from disadvantaged backgrounds, and you end up with a creepy feeling. And that's where I just stopped and thought, oh my goodness, Tom has gone to a new level since we talked about this topic with him on the show. Matt, what do you think? Did you get a chance to read the article? What do you make of what JR just read? Yeah, I read the article. I, I think it's a great article. I I I don't think we're at any risk of people not going to watch the Super Bowl out of moral grounds. Like Tom has said, he's stopped. But I've got to think he's in the vast, vast majority. Mm-hmm. Minority. Or major- I mean minority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, having said that, I think his, his argument is super compelling. I don't think there's any question that the Super Bowl and football and professional sport, maybe not all professional sports, but many professional sports are built uh, in an unjust way designed to, yeah, make a whole bunch of money and who gets chewed up along the way is not really an issue. Uh, from that point, you know what I mean? It's an issue to me. I'm saying I don't think it's an issue to the machine. Yeah. And I, w- yeah. I want to say, you know, Tom, he says he, he's a big fan. I mean, Tom said he used to have the direct ticket. He watched all day Sunday. I mean, he was that kind of a, of a of an avid fan. And I'm still there. You know, I am not. Sure. 
he he tried to give up watching football. I think three years ago he said, and then he had a little bit of a lapse last year. But you know he he feels the conflict, and now he's made the decision to just not participate as a spectator. I am not there yet, but I am increasingly feeling troubled as I recognize more and more men who are basically having violent incidents, killing themselves, and being diagnosed with this disease. That That's what it is for me, too, is like, and Matt, you said it perfectly, you said the system doesn't care, right? When you see so many so many incidents of, of professional sports players, not just in the NFL, but especially in the NFL, who are abusing spouses or partners, who are uh, doing really terrible things, uh, and, and the league doesn't care. Uh, you know, Ray Rice uh, was caught on camera, and... Uh, over the next several games, people in Baltimore were wearing his jerseys to the game, like supporting this person who knocked his girlfriend out. Yeah. And we had a video of it. And the NFL didn't make it an issue until the video went public. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's clear that they don't they don't care at all. The the system of the NFL is designed to make massive profits. It's making them on off of these again as Tom's pointed out and his statistics bear out, uh, largely disadvantaged and minority populations uh, that are participating in the game. And so he makes which he's not the first to do this, but it's an it, I think it's an accurate comparison. Uh, it's 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 more and more like the Hunger Games. Hmm. You know. And, well, let me let me take the NFL advocate position uh, for a second. <laughs> Super rare. Wow. What's <laughs> happening? Uh, what do you say to people who would say, okay, yeah, sure. Some people get hurt in football. What, however it happens, they get hurt. Bad things happen. We're paying these guys $10 million a year. What would you say? You know, if I gave you a helmet and said, I'll give you 10 million bucks to smack your head against a wall a hundred times a year would as hard as you can, like, would you take the 10 million? Like maybe a lot of people would, especially people in poverty. So what do you do with that? Like I'm saying they're well paid for what they do. So what you're saying it's unjust. Well, how is it unjust when I'm giving them that much money? Well, and that's where, that's where I think the, the comparison to the hunger games is, is appropriate because what you essentially have are people who are wealthy, um, buying the bodies of those who are less, wealthy who are disadvantaged for the pleasure of those who are wealthy but to matt's point the hunger games is not optional this is people who choose to play this sport they excel at it they choose to enter the nfl draft they choose to sign contracts and play i mean is that kind of the position you're at matt where it's like the risk the risk is outweighed by the reward I'm actually not there, and I, I uh, what I That's, think is yeah. interesting. Some some of the players have said, "Well, no one, no one told us that yeah. we were going to have severe mental damage." Like, and the NFL apparently knew. Like, there are studies that they've been hiding or keeping under wraps. So, I think that goes to the injustice issue too. But let's assume that they set everything on the table and said, "Here's every horrible thing that would happen to your body if you play." Potentially, do you want ten million a year? And I think there would be lines of yeah, people going around the block. So when a system, well, it, that goes back to the the fact that if the system is unjust, then it doesn't matter well, what potential gains can happen within it. And again, when when someone is at a disadvantaged position financially or culturally, like many of the the people who play in the NFL or the NBA or uh, major leagues, you know, baseball, any of professional sports, when they are like that. Uh, there's automatically complicated justice issues because, again, what you have are very, very wealthy people making money. Uh, Chris Rock, I think, was the comedian who observed, you know, he didn't want to be Shaq. He wanted to be the white guy signing Shaq's check. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at, the, yeah. at the top, at the top, 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 it's still not these people representing themselves, um, paying for themselves. It's still a system that is run by majority culture, by privileged, uh, almost always white persons. Uh, and so, yeah, there's all kinds of weird. You're and saying it, it's the owners. Yeah, it's the owners, Matt. <laughs> and, and again, yeah, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's it's always, always, always. Um, we are getting enjoyment from the exploitation of someone else's body. Yeah, and that that should at least, at minimum, it should complicate how we approach Super Bowl Sunday. We get it, Jr. It does. Okay. <laughs> That's why we have well, to eat so well, much. Well, no, like, I love boxing, right? I went and saw Creed, and I thought it was amazing. It was one of my favorite films of the year. Boxing is another sport that's a great example of that. Like, sure. when you're inside the sport and you see, like, what exactly is going on, there's something really beautiful about it. And yet, when, you, when you're cheering it on, like, you have to wonder if everyone's really cheering the beauty well, of the it's sport. It's like how I feel that MMA is gross. I mean, I, I yeah. can't. I can, I'm not, as a spectator, I can't participate for a second. I will break my wrist trying to reach for the remote to change it if it comes on. And, and I wonder how Texas, you know, specifically being down here where it's God family football, I wonder if uh, a lot of these Texas parents where football is such a part of the culture down here, I wonder if they're going to start sidelining their kids even in Texas you from know, high school ball. I have a, I have a friend who is a, he works in a university as a, as a athletic or as, as a weight coach, and he has said that he sees the bodies of the athletes who are coming into his programs, mm-hmm. you know, um, are older and older and older like the injuries that he's seen are typically injuries that in the past we wouldn't have seen on someone until they're like in their late 20s or early 30s Mm. but because kids sports are becoming professionalized and you know you start training junior for the nfl when he's in like peewee five-year-old football Mm -hmm. and so their bodies are being put through way more than people i know we sound like crotchety old men back in my day we just played football in the backyard and we liked it you know, but, Back in but, my day, football was soccer. <laughs> but 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 it's true. Like I mean, you can again. There's like research. This is demonstrable fact. Yeah. It's not just a bunch of grumpy old men rocking in chairs and you know griping at stuff. Well, I uh, definitely recommend that you check out the article by Tom Kratmaker on USA Today. Also, you can look up uh, some comments by Antoine Randall recently, a former player. He's only 36 and already having major struggles. He wishes he had never played football, he says, and he believes the sport might even be obsolete in 20 to 25 years. Take that, capitalism, although probably not reality. (laughs) All right. uh, We are about ready for our interview with Gene, but before we do that, we really should take care of some business Are you talking about the Papow? Papow! It is our pop culture pick of the week where we share something we're into in pop culture this week. I'm going to go first so Clay doesn't steal mine. And I do have to say as a follow-up to last week's, this, the episode of The X-Files that aired Monday night, it's the third of this reboot, was absolutely incredible. And if you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. I'm not going to say anything about it. Are you taking two papals again? No, I'm just... I'm just re- reminding yeah, everyone. I know what you're doing. We yeah. all know what you're doing. Um, but no, uh, I is have it, been... Is that the one with the werewolves? I'm not going to say anything, Matt. <laughs> I was trying to bait you into it. Oh, nope. wow. <laughs> I'm sly. Uh, so I'm going to choose The Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson. I want to say by Brandon Sanderson. That's my, that's my pick. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about him, Clay. What do you appreciate about no, this? No, good. You can have it this time. Uh, <laughs> so, very briefly... Uh, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series is a trilogy of trilogies, exactly. and he's in the second trilogy right now. 
the first trilogy was a pretty classical fantasy trilogy set in a vaguely medieval world. And it was a, it was an amazing trilogy. Like I, I would, I would challenge anyone to read it and not be completely wowed by the storytelling. It's fantastic. The second trilogy is set in that same universe, but in the future. So it's in like basically the wild West kind of frontier era of that universe, but it's all the same magic system and everything. And he's claimed that he has envisioned a third trilogy after this one is concluded, uh, where it's in the future. And it's like a sci-fi universe, but it's, it's like the same, the same world. Uh, so it's really cool. It's unlike any fantasy series I've ever read. It's really good. There are, uh, the trilogy and then a standalone novella that sets up the second trilogy. And then two books of the second trilogy are out and they're super fun. I highly recommend them. So we'll put links to all those in the show notes. Sermon.us. But the Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson is my papel. All right, Matt, how about you take the next one? You know, I'm actually going to pick one of Gene Yang's books because we were going to have him on when he had a book called The Shadow Hero come out. And, and for a variety of reasons, it didn't end up working out. But it's so fun. It's like such a cool book. It's a superhero book that he wrote. A guy named Sonny Liu drew it. Uh, and uh, the art's gorgeous. The writing's beautiful. It's about the first Asian-American superhero, and he actually takes a Golden Age hero that was uh, sort of an actual comic that came out, you know, a long time ago, and he imagines a uh, an entire kind of origin story and all this for it. And the guy, the whole thing's complicated. I won't get into the whole story, but basically it's the story of a guy who manages to get superheroes, but it's very, very Chinese-American. So it's about immigration, family, honor, superpowers. Uh, And uh, I think if you're reading his Superman at all, you'd be really interested in one of his characters in the... I don't want to give this away, I guess. There is a very Superman-like character in in that series that ends up giving some advice and coming alongside the, the main hero. In that, so that's the Shadow Hero by Gene Yang. It's spectacular, so fun, very cool. And I will go with a documentary. I watch a lot of these, and I haven't dipped into one for a while. But in honor of the upcoming eleven twenty two sixty three by Stephen King, which comes out in mid February, I'm going to recommend a documentary on Netflix called The Smoking Gun. It is for all of you conspiracy theorists out there and uh, those interested in American history, JFK lore. But this is one of the most compelling documentaries I've seen on the subject. One of the top Australian detectives who brought down tons of organized criminals through going deep cover for years, his name's Colin McLaren. He came to the States and he started fresh with like an outsider's perspective using this incredible work from a guy named Howard Donahue, who the Warren Commission and people for years um, had a chance to listen to. Some of them did. Many of them didn't. But I would just say that if you're into documentaries and history... This is some of the most compelling stuff I've ever seen. It's incredible. And the ballistics bear out what I think is my working theory on how exactly JFK was shot. And you might be surprised to learn that it was, I don't want to give it all away, but if what if it was accidental on at the hands of the Secret Service? The theory combines everything, including Oswald. It makes sense out of all that we know. And it has actual, even some archive photo and video image. I really appreciate that you saved me having to sit through a documentary by just telling me the ending. I didn't. Uh, no, because you missed the part. He didn't share the part with you yet where the NFL uh, had oh, actually kind of set it up. It was the, the Secret <laughs> Service guys. Right. It was accidental. Now, is this guy, this Australian guy, is he, is he enough of an outsider that at one point he is like, 
he says something like, crikey, the president is sort of like the prime minister of America. Like, is it that, is he that much of an outsider? No. He's a really <laughs> smart dude. All right, well, That's The Smoking Gun is available on Netflix. Uh, we are ready for our interview with Gene. We have had him on the show before. He's fantastic. His current run on Superman is amazing. And as you'll hear in the interview, it's kind of getting ready to wrap up, so we're excited to hear what Gene is doing next uh, as well. So let's uh, hop over to our interview with Gene. All right, well, <laughs> welcome back to the story, man, Gene. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're yeah, we're glad excited. you. Glad it all got uh, worked so- out. Uh, Gene, I, for Christmas, I got secret coders. Um, oh, cool. Which, yeah, which was great. I loved it. It was so fun. And I made a joke to you a while back about how I saw the preview and I didn't understand binary still, which you were explaining using this bird that has multiple eyes. And it was really funny. Uh-huh. I was like, I laughed, but I didn't understand binary. But when I read it in the book, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I actually understand. Awesome. So I was, we need you to do a similar book about how to connect on Google Hangout or Skype with our guests. <laughs> so that would be Dude, good. I don't know but, if I can do a book like that. It's too, it's too complicated. <laughs> it's way too complicated. Binary is nothing compared to getting all that stuff. Uh, hey, tell, tell us a little bit about Secret Coders and teaching kids uh, computer science through comics and education and entertainment. Like, how did you come to that? Sure. I uh, was a high school teacher. I taught high school computer science for 17 years. And I always taught in this very visual way. I do a lot of drawing on the board uh, to show what was going on inside the computer's memory. And as I was teaching, I always thought that some of my lessons of these would work really well as a comic book, as a graphic novel. So it's something I always wanted to do. And finally, a couple of years ago, I proposed it to my editor uh, at first second, and they were into it, so we did it. We started off signing for three books, and now um, we've signed for six. So it'll be six. Oh, wow. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, I mean, one of the best parts of this project is I get to work with this guy named Mike Holmes. So I'm only handling the writing. The, the drawing is all done by Mike. Uh, he's this incredibly talented cartoonist. He, um, he kind of made the name for himself working on the Adventure Time property. So he did the mm-hmm. uh, comic book that was connected to the TV series. And he's so fast. He's like one of the fastest cartoonists I know. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, are you doing any more drawing right now, Gene? You're doing a lot of writing, and we're going to talk about some of your other projects. But are you? Are you yeah, I am doing. Oh, I am doing a lot of writing for sure. Um, I, you know, I, I am working on a book. Uh, the next book that I'll also be drawing, and it's just coming super slow. Oh my gosh, it's like so slow. It's my first nonfiction project, and I think I have a lot of fear around um, getting things right and how to, how to, how to chuckle, you know, like, because in comics, because it's drawn, because you're already cartooning, there is already this level of fiction that sits on top of your story, even when you're doing nonfiction. So I'm trying to figure out where that line is. Mm. Uh, But I I followed a a high school basketball team for a season, the 14-15 season, and I'll be doing a book about that. That would be the next one that I actually draw. Gene, what was it about the basketball team, if we can ask, that, uh, that compels you to follow them for a full season? Well, well, first, it, I had access. It's the basketball team of the school where I used to teach. Uh, so I became friends with the coach of the team. And second is, as I got to know the team, as I got to know the coach, I just found a, a very compelling story. The coach, his name is Lou Ritchie, and he's actually an alum of the high school. It's Bishop O'Dowd High School in Oakland, California. So he's an O'Dowd alum. When he was a junior, 
um, he was on the basketball team, and they went to the California State Championship. So in the last few moments of that game, um, O'Dowd was down by one. Lou got the ball. He put it up, and it actually went in at the buzzer. So they won the game. <laughs> wow. But within just a few minutes of, of winning, the refs invalidated his last shot. <gasps> because oh. they said that there was... They, they said that um, one of his teammates had had his hand in that sacred space above the rim. Uh, and and, uh, and Lou, like, he has a tape of this game, right? So he showed it to me. Uh, and uh, when you play the tape, it's really hard to tell if his hand was actually over or not, you know? So it was, it was a really controversial call. It's something that haunted him, uh, you know, for, for a few years after that. He eventually ended up playing in, in college. He played at UCLA, and then at Clemson, and then he got injured. And then he came back to a doubt to coach. So as an assistant coach and then later a head coach, he led five teams to the, the championship, to the state championship, and they lost all five times. So he has gone to the championship as a player and as a coach six times, lost all of them. Wow. And last year was supposedly his, his best chance at finally winning. That's but unbelievable. What a story. So when, uh, when are you hoping to have that out? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. Dude. <laughs> okay, fair, so fair, slow. Fair okay. I, I just turned in, I just turned in um, the thumbnails for Chapter 2, the first draft of Chapter 2. So I, need to, I, I got my notes back from my editor. Uh, we had a lo- really good conversation about it, and I need to rewrite that. So I'm guessing there'll probably be seven or eight chapters, and each chapter is just taking me forever so far, just to write, not even counting the drawings. So I don't know how long it's going to take. <laughs> well, since yeah. uh, since we last oh, had you on the show, uh, you have been, I can't believe how much you've been doing. Um, and, and probably most notably, uh, well, I don't know, between writing Superman and being named Ambassador, uh I, again, it's just it's it's staggering to me how much you have going on. But starting with with issue number forty one, you are the guy writing Superman. Um, I am, I am. Although they just announced today that my last issue will be issue fifty. So I have, uh, heard that rumor and have been did, very sad you, in mourning. Yeah, did you know that was coming? Was that like a mutual thing? I did. I did. Like, yeah, I, had, I mean, the, the guy who's taking over, um, his name is Pete Tomasi. He's the writer of uh, Superman Wonder Woman right now. And he's actually part of the team, you know. So as a team, we've been we've been kind of writing together. So our our stories are uh, at least kind of on the same page. So he's a buddy, you know. And I and I think uh, I think he'll do a great job on Superman. He's got this. He's got a really firm grasp on um, writing action in comics, uh, and uh, and sort of saying like if you if you read his stuff, he says a lot with just a few words. He's he's like one of those um, writers who who really understand the economy of writing so i I think i think you'll have a great run so i I have a couple questions i was i was gonna wait and ask about uh your relationship with Pete and the other guys uh but since you brought it up uh maybe so maybe two-part question one can you just talk a little bit about what it's like to be you know the guy writing superman but then also particularly with issue 48 you know something happened in superman wonder woman that then like you resolved and so I, I kind of wanted to know, like, as soon as I read that, I was like, wow, what, what is it like, uh, or what's the relationship between you as the guy who's writing a what should be a standalone book, but it's also part of this bigger, like, four-book collection, and, like, how much, what, can you just talk about the relationship between, like, you and the other authors, and, you know, like, when someone says, I'm going to do this to Superman in my book, like, how much 
influence that has on your, you know, does that make sense? I'm trying not to spoil anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the Superman stuff has definitely been the most collaborative setting I've, I've ever been a part of. Uh, I've never done uh, a comic like this, for sure. You know, because he's, he's not just part of this group of Superman books. He's also part of this larger universe, this larger DC universe. So things that happen in, like, Batman will affect what we're doing in Superman. Early on, um, I flew out to New York back when DC Comics was still in New York, and we had the Superman Summit, so all four of the writers of mm. Superman, we all got together, including Pete and, and, and this guy named Greg Pak, who did uh, Action Comics, and Aaron Cooter, who was his co-writer on Action Comics. Uh, and, and we kind of just planned, planned everything out. It's been, it's been kind of nutty, though. It's been, it's been fun because, um, you know, I was a fan of these guys before I started working with them. Now we're friends, which is really nice. Uh, but it's also been like, it's, it's like this giant Tetris puzzle that you're trying to fit everything together. You know, like early on uh, in, in issues 41 through 47, um, we were trying to stay close to each other, but we didn't, like dovetail each other, right? It wasn't like a true crossover. And from 48 to 50, it'll be a true crossover. So that's been, um, it's, it's been a challenge, but I, I feel like I've learned a lot and it's been great to get to know these other guys. Uh, go ahead, man. Um, so Gene, what, what happens that, so Peter's going to switch over. Are you guys like trading books? Or are you going to be writing Jimmy Olsen now? Because I would read a Jimmy Olsen series <laughs> if I wrote it. Superman's pal. I would totally well, read that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking with DC right now about uh, about another possible project. So we, we haven't landed on anything yet, but we're talking. Cool. Yeah, um, Pete, uh, you know, when Pete takes over, it, in a lot of ways, his, his job is going to be a lot harder than mine was because the book is going to go um, bi-weekly. So oh, gosh. That'll just be a lot of writing. Well, <laughs> and a lot I, of coordinating with artists. I've heard that they're trying to make the two Batman and Superman titles align more closely with the movie, Batman v Superman movie. Is that, is that something that's just a rumor or that you're allowed to comment on or something? I made yeah, up? you know, I, I have not been a part of that discussion okay. at all. So okay. I'm not totally okay. sure uh, yeah, what the direction is. But I, but I think, you know, Pete is, uh, like he's, he's a, he's, he used to be an editor. He's a veteran writer. He's gonna, he's, and he's, he's been with the Superman character for a really long time. He really understands him. So I think he'll do great. So uh, one of our one of our listeners, a friend of ours named Blaine Grimes, asked. He wanted to know specifically, like, what was it that made you guys want to do this sort of like post Snowden? You know, information is everywhere. You can't hide anymore. Sort of story arc. <laughs> well, we were um, we were encouraged by by uh, the folks at DC to to set some big changes up for Superman. You know, it was part of the DCU initiative. What they wanted to do was they wanted to take all their major characters. And, and they wanted to kind of turn him upside down. So, so in Batman, Bruce Wayne got amnesia, forgot that he was Batman, and Jim Gordon had to take over right. the, the cake and cow. Uh, and the, for us, we decided on this, uh, this storyline where he would be revealed. Uh, Superman, he's the first superhero, so he really established a lot of the conventions that we find in the superhero genre right now, including the secret identity. You know, And one thing that we talked about early on was whether or not in the information age it would even be plausible to keep a secret identity. Uh, and, uh, and we wanted that to be kind of the central focus of the first rock that, that he went through. Well, and what I found fascinating about what you've been doing, I know you've said this in a couple of other interviews elsewhere, but but you, you sort of made, with, again, I just was, I, I did not care about, he's a 
hero that's hard for me to care about because he's so powerful. And it seems like most writers just make something else really powerful, like an alien that he has to just hit harder. And so, you know, I find unless unless someone's like writing him really well, I don't care. And and you made you made him an immigrant, which of course he's always been, right? But like I just had never thought about him that way. And and you you force that issue with him not having a secret identity to hide behind anymore. And so especially as I'm, you know, I'm reading these issues of Superman as all of the Syrian refugee stuff is going on. And, you know, Matt even posted a panel from a comic from like the, when was that Matt, like the sixties or something where, yeah, I found an old, uh, it, it was actually, it was a public service announcement in an old DC comic where Superman flies into this neighborhood and teaches kids like, Hey, be nice to immigrants. Like they have had a refugees have had a hard life. You should be nice to them. So I put, it had to be from late sixties, early seventies, maybe. So I I just I That's love awesome. that you brought awesome. that perspective to Superman and and br- taking him to San Francisco and all the stuff you did with like the Myth Brawl out there. Uh, I mean that that all felt like stuff that was your voice coming into Superman. Like what? How much of that was you, and how much of that was like this collaborative team you were working with? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a balance. It's definitely a balance. So, the, the uh, you know, I really wanted to bring him out to the Bay Area, <laughs> and I got to do that. And uh, I have to tell you, so it's hard to say, it's hard to tell, I think, from, from what I wrote on Superman, but I'm definitely a, a Superman classicist. Like, I like, I like old, old, the old, old versions of Superman, right? And one of the things that, it was like a little ploy that didn't work, but one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to get him back into his like his old suit, you know, like with the oh. with the red underwear and everything. And I thought putting him in a wrestling ring that would be a plausible reason why he would put his <laughs> his, uh, his red underwear back on. It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't go for it. And, and also, like like one of the things that I wanted, and, and Aaron uh, Cooter, one of the other writers, uh, wanted as well, was that old Fleischer S with the black background and the and the yellow outline. Mm. Uh, so I'm really glad that 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 made it into the book as well. But but bringing him out to uh, the Bay Area, um, having him fight like an evil Mark Zuckerberg, those are all pieces that I wanted to do. Um, in terms of him him powering down, I think that was something that a, a lot of folks were interested in uh, who were in the group. And for me, again, as a classicist, I didn't really think of it as him losing all of his power so much as him reverting back to what he was like. So in the very beginning, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, he couldn't fly, he didn't have heat vision. Um, so it wasn't so much that we were taking away the Superman parts of him. It was more that we were backing him up to what well, his original power set was. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you really took away was his secret identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the original, the only thing we took away was the secret identity. That's right. So that was the modern piece. So, I mean, as as far as you're concerned, like, as far as, you know, you, you're doing 10 issues on the book. Like, what's the mark you want to leave on Superman, you know, moving forward for you? Well, you know, I, I wanted to, um, so some of the things that I was really interested in exploring that um, I felt like I was able to hit were um, his role as almost like modern mythology, you know, so that's why that's why I had him hanging out with the gods during the wrestling, um, during that that whole wrestling sequence. Uh, and the second is kind of to, to explore what it means to have a secret identity in, in the modern era. And that's what we did with the first one. In this last piece, uh, one of my favorite villains in the DC universe is Vandal Savage. And it definitely wasn't just my choice to bring him in as the big bad. 
uh, it kind of came out of a, a larger discussion, but I'm pretty happy that it came out. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll do some interesting things with him before it's over. Well, I can't imagine there's too much cooler than having a Superman summit in New York, but you've been doing a lot of cool <laughs> things lately, Gene, uh, including uh, being named the National Ambassador, Literary Ambassador to Youth by the Library of Congress. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, it's been crazy. Yeah, it's the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. I got excited watching you share that news. So what is the purpose of that? And can you talk a little bit about that experience, what they have asked you to do to announce it, and what it means going forward? Sure. The The post was created in 2008. Um, it's a two-year term, so so far there have been f- there are four of them before me. I'm the fifth. And the whole point is just to get kids reading, to get more kids reading, and also to get kids reading more. Uh, a lot of it involves doing events. So I'll be speaking at different book festivals, including the uh, National Book Festival in D.C., in the fall. And then we're also trying to figure out how to use technology to promote reading. So we don't have any concrete plans yet, but that's definitely something that's in discussion right now between me and the Library of Congress and the Children's Book Council. So we're, we're trying to figure that out. But every, um, every ambassador picks a platform of some kind that they want to talk about. And my platform is Reading Without Walls. We want to encourage kids to read outside of their comfort zones, and we want them to do it in three really different ways. We want them to do it, one, by reading about characters that aren't like them or don't live like them or look like them. Uh, two is to read uh, books about topics that they might find intimidating. And three is to read books in different formats. Uh, when I was a kid, I had these friends who were sci-fi snobs, and they totally looked down on comics. They would just not touch <laughs> a comic book with a 10-foot pole. Uh, so if you're like that, I would encourage you to, to read a graphic novel. But now, you know, I meet a lot of kids that are the exact opposite who are only interested in reading graphic novels. And for those kids, I feel like I love graphic novels, but I, I think that, you know, they're missing out on a whole category of amazing stories by not touching prose. So to those kids, I'm hoping to encourage them to, to try prose. You talked about this for creators some, too, not too long ago, Gene, where you were talking about if you're a writer, you need to work on learning to write uh, characters who are different than you, not just from your own experience, but learning enough about other people that you could actually write something that might ring true for their experience and having those people double-check your work and like stuff like that, too, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that was really a book, uh, like almost like a pep talk for myself. <laughs> um, I, I think it's I think it's kind of a, a funky thing, right? Like we're, um, I, I think most writers are interested in writing characters that are different from them, like different from them culturally, different from them in terms of lifestyle. But it also feels freaky because you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to inadvertently piss somebody off or misrepresent somebody, mm-hmm. or like uh, be racist so this- or sexist because you your racism yeah. or sexism is is revealed by your ignorance in some way. That's not yeah, true. yeah, yeah, and 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 I feel like that's a. I mean, that's a really it's a legitimate concern, right? It's a legitimate concern yeah, when sure. we're living in a diverse society. Um, but I just don't think like you can't let that fear stop you from writing. Writing is so hard that you gotta, you just gotta. I feel like you gotta just gather the right team and and move forward and go. You know, I I um I I did a talk on this at the last National Book Festival. It was in Maybe two years ago I did it. And um, and at the time, I was working on Secret Coders, which has um, the first uh, 
well, like one of the protagonists is an African American boy, and the other one is a biracial girl. So uh, those are both experiences that I have not personally had. So I want, I mean, and I felt a lot of fear going into that project. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like it was just a pep talk for me. It was me trying to talk myself out of my fear. Jean, I have a friend who teaches fifth grade, and she's really passionate about getting her students to read. She works so hard to find ways to creatively engage them. So if there's a teacher or a parent listening to this and they want to maybe tap into one of the resources that's available through this initiative, um, what, what, is, what is a tip or a place that you would send those people? Well, right now, um, right now we, uh, these are the things we've done. We've, we put out recommendation lists. So I put out a recommendation list for diverse books. I put out a recommendation list um, for STEM books for books about science, technology, engineering, math, because that's one of the big categories of topics that people sometimes find intimidating. And then I put uh, out uh, a list of uh, recommended graphic novels as well. Okay. So that's one, one way to start. Um, and they're all available in poster form. You can download them and print them out uh, on, on your home printer. That's one way. Second is, this is closed, but um, for a while, the CPC was actually taking event requests. It ended two days ago. Oh no! Uh, so, um, so you can put in your event request and then and then outside. I think they're going to do it again at the beginning of next year, though. Nice. I'm not positive about that, but I think they're going to do it again. Uh, and then and then third, once um, those events are set up, um, hopefully I'll be coming close to to that teacher friend, and and maybe we can meet in person. That would, she would be so excited. Uh, so Jean, yeah, we're also trying to figure out like tech stuff, but but none of that is concrete yet. Sure. I'm hoping to get something concrete within the next couple months. Awesome, great work. Uh, we had another listener, Scott Parsons Facchetti, who asked if you would comment about the significance of having uh, a graphic novelist named the ambassador for young people's literature. Well, I think it's kind of a crazy thing. You know, I, I don't think it's something that I could have imagined when I was starting off in comics. It's definitely not something I could imagine when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you just weren't allowed to read comics in school, you know, during uh, SSR, you couldn't, you couldn't bring in a comic book. And now it seems like, for most kids at least, that's at least an option. It's on the table. You know, it's, it's one, of the, one of the things you can pick, which is amazing. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, a lot of this has been built up over the last several decades. There are just a ton of books, like, like Mouse, and like what the Hernandez brothers were doing, and Linda Berry, and um, all it, like Craig Thompson. And what these folks did was they really built up a category in people's minds of a literary graphic novel, a graphic novel that um, explored deep issues in a sophisticated way. So I think the fact that the Library of Congress was willing to consider a graphic novel list for this post is, um, I mean, it's really a testament to the success of what they did, of, of all of these books that have kind of, kind of shown people that graphic novels can be a little bit more than what they were, they were expecting. That's fantastic. It's a crazy thing. It's really, it's really nuts. It's, uh, it's shocking. It's, it's wonderful and beautiful for all of us who love comics <laughs> and who have known deep in our hearts for a long time that they count as real books. <laughs> yeah, 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 for real. I mean, even like, even the National Master before me, her, her name's Kate DiCamillo. Have you read some of her stuff? She, she I did oh, yeah. Win Dixie. Yeah, she I did uh, Tale of Despero. Great writer, one of the most celebrated American children's book writers. And, you know, currently living. And her last book was Flora and Ulysses, which was actually a hybrid book. So one chapter would be in prose, the next one would be in comics. 
You know, uh-huh. so in a lot of ways, I'm not even the first. Like she, she did a graphic novel. She did a half graphic novel at least. <laughs> nice half graphic novel. I like that. <laughs> we are uh, we're about out of time, but Gene, before you go, would you tell us the best places to connect with you on the internet? Because I know a lot of our listeners who didn't connect with you the first time for some unimaginable reason <laughs> certainly by now well, we picked want up so to. many new friends. That's true. That's true. We have new to friends hear. too. New friends. So what and then we just ways- have people who don't always listen to our advice because they're dumb. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are the best ways to connect with you online? Well, so I, have a, I have a website. Uh, if you go to jeanlinyang.com, that's G-E-N-E-L-U-E-N-Y-A-N-G. Uh, I'm there. I'm on Twitter as well under the same handle, jeanlinyang, and I'm also on Facebook. Same thing. We will put all of those links in the show notes at storymen.us and at facebook.com slash thestorymen. We'll make sure that we list Gene's uh, growing body of work. Uh, including the trades of his Superman collection that are out and the ones that are forthcoming. Uh, Gene, thank you for coming back to the show. We love following your work. We love hearing what you're what you're doing, what you're up to next. Uh, thanks so much for being with us again. And Gene, I just want to oh, say... thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thank you, Gene. I just want to say, if you would ever like to have Superman Summit 2 with some enthusiasts, <laughs> we, we would be happy All to right, host man. and or join... <laughs> And, and Gene, I'll go tell the DC comics higher up, and we'll, we'll see. But we'll even see if DC's not I'm okay, oh, I got any more though. <laughs> I gotta tell you. I just wanted to say, if you would just on my behalf say hello to the Library of Congress when you're talking to them, I would really appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm putting it on my checklist right now. <laughs> uh, well, Gene, thanks again. This has been Storyman episode 118, featuring Gene Lu and Yang. We'll be back next week with another great episode. In the meantime, let Gene know that you enjoyed having him on the show, pick up some of his books, and uh, you might as well buy two copies because you'll want to give one to a friend when you're done. So, uh, thanks again, and we'll be this back soon. Is a song about the three men. Life is a story. there's a man rather sometimes there's some men and I'm talking about the story men here and I know what you're thinking those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined but we're missing the point sometimes there's some men and you want to know what these hombres are about well I won't say they're heroes they're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.